as always, we come in need, overcome our doubts and our distractions and increase our faith. What we have not, give us. What we know not, teach us. And it's in Christ's name we ask all these things. Amen. Amen. So if you'll go ahead and open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. And we're going to be looking at uh, verses 9 through 13. And while you flip there, um, today, the way it's going to work is that I'll present the main idea of this text, uh, two truths that come out of the text, and then we'll end considering the main idea again. So that's how it will look. So if you're there, I will read it for us. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Amen. Praise be to God for his word. Do you know what compassion means? So I was listening to a teaching this week that just fumbling through podcasts and this came up and it just fit right in with what I've been studying. And I learned uh, in this, this podcast that compassion comes from the words where it comes from the, the two uh, root words, like feelings or like passions or like emotions. So it's like entering into the feelings of another person, right? That's compassion. Like when you see someone, if you're ever watching a game and you see an athlete break a bone, it's like you, you feel the pain, like, Ugh! and you, you have compassion because you feel it and you have sorry on that person. You, you feel sorry for that person. As children of God, we weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. But for some reason, we resist the idea of having compassion on people who are just caught and mired in gross, wicked sins. We struggle. We don't even want to have compassion on that person oftentimes. The irony is, that if there's any place in which we can easily have like passions, it's with the wicked. Because of who we are, that is the place where we relate best. It's with the wicked. Compassion should come easy to us because of who we are. And it should come easy to us as we live life together here at CBC. But brothers and sisters, God originally designed everything. He designed us, creation. And when he designed that, he designed us to love him. In fact, he's the one where love gets its measurement and its definition. And he designed us to love each other with a harmony and a peace and compassion like no other. Yet here in these verses that we just read, there's already cultural and social discord that exists within society and there's self-righteousness of the Pharisees that shows us that our natural disposition is not love for God, 
And it's not love for other people. It's for self. We love self. And this selfishness results in overlooking our own sin and judging everybody else's for theirs. Or just not caring about sin or God at all. For we do naturally hate him. And in these verses, we read in Matthew 9, we observe the most religious elite Jewish leaders having a lot of trouble with what Jesus is teaching and how he's living his life. But the poor, the sick, the genuine, uh, the Gentile Romans, the widows, the prostitutes, the lame, the blind, the, the most sinful of sinful can't stay away from Jesus. They're flocking to Jesus. And in fact, there's many times already up until chapter 9 where when Jesus is done dealing with them, they're shouting for God's glory. The same folks who are ignored by the religious elite are touched and healed by Jesus. In attempts to be righteous and do what God's law says, the Pharisees have actually missed it all. They've missed it all completely because they think that they're actually righteous by their outward keeping of the law. And in that attempt, what they do is lower the standard of God's holiness and they lower the perfect obedience to the law that he demands. My dear people, not much has changed from then to now. We naturally bend towards pride, not compassion. We seek to justify ourselves before God by our obedience. So it makes sense then when Jesus says, those who are well have no need of physician, that he exhorts the Pharisees to understand what it means that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. He's rebuking their religion of outward rule following, and he's exposing their morality that's actually no morality at all. And in showing them the true nature of the law, it pierces their hearts, it exposes their, their corruption, it exposes their wickedness. And it exposes their lack of understanding the God they so devoutly study. He's not telling them that there are some who are sick and some who are not. In other words, the great physician is here because only sick people walk this earth. And so, Jesus came for sinners. And there is a freedom which leads to a life of mercy. When one realizes their sickness and is touched by the great physician. Jesus came for sinners. This is the big idea. Jesus came for sinners. And there's a freedom that comes with resting in Christ. It's a freedom that frees us from our natural programming to pride and selfishness. To a life of compassion towards each other. Because we are no longer condemned. Look with me at, at verse 9. He says, as Jesus passed from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth, and he said, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. So here's the great physician at work with Matthew, a tax collector. Of course, Pharisees hate tax collectors. And I mean, we got to give, I mean, rightly so, if we're going to talk in human terms, right? They're basically traitors to the Jewish nation because they're taking money for Rome. They're in, you know, in cahoots with Rome. Oftentimes, if you know, if you owe me ten bucks, I'm gonna ask for fifteen and keep five. 
So they ended up being a little rich basically by stealing. I mean, the Pharisees hated them, right? And Jesus, of course, goes to the tax collector, sorry, and says, follow me. In the middle of tax collecting, he shows up to Matthew and says, follow me. Point number one, here's a truth that we see. Jesus' words do what they say. Jesus' words do what they say. We've been working through uh, the first three chapters of Genesis right up until this week, and now we're in Matthew. But here's something cool. Just like in creation, when God says, let there be light, there's light. The great prophet of God who is God in the flesh, his words do what they say. He comes preaching the truth because he is truth. He teaches with authority because he is the authority. And he doesn't teach with authority that's from God. He teaches with authority as God. And so he calls people to repentance and belief. And guess what? They repent and they believe. He declares the way because he is the way. And so he says, Matthew, get up and follow me. So Matthew got up and followed him. It's very simple in that way. And I want to keep it that simple for the sake of this definition of monergism. Who does the saving? God does the saving. And of course, interjection here, does God use means? Absolutely. Does he use the consequences of our sin? Does he use our parents' discipline? Does he use uh, the church? Does he use people to woo us and to get us to see our sinfulness and to teach us the gospel? And we believe it, of course. But here's the thing. We don't get any of those details. All we have is Jesus said, follow me. And then in Luke's account, it says he left everything and followed him. Why? Because Jesus said, get up out the grave and come on. And he came on, right? So what's being communicated in the scriptures is very, very clear to understand when we understand who Jesus is and what he came to do. We won't miss that point. We won't miss the fact that Jesus said, get up, and he got up. When we understand that all of this scripture is pointing to the fact that we need a Savior and he's here, we, it becomes clear, right? This is true for all of those who have eyes to see. If we forget that Jesus has come as the greater Adam to meet all of God's requirements, then we will easily drive home and emphasize the minor points of this text. Oftentimes, Matthew becomes the point. His getting up and leaving everything and following Jesus is 45 minutes of a 50-minute sermon that I've heard growing up. Instead of the God who left heaven to save sinners. That is the point. That is the point. So in love and excitement, what we can maybe assume is compassion. Matthew calls up all his friends and he throws a party and is like, bro, I'm leaving. I'm, I'm not tax collecting anymore and you got to meet Jesus. So he throws a party. Literally the words of, uh, in, in Luke 5 is the accountant where he's like, he throws a party. So that's what the word is. And so Jesus is now at a kickback at Matthew's house with a bunch of Matthew's tax collecting friends and sinners. So, of course, reading in verse 10, that's what we see there. Jesus reclined at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And then reading verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
going to move this up. I'm sorry. So, of course, the Pharisees see this, and they are absolutely perplexed. So they ask, why in the world is your rabbi, is your Jewish teacher, hanging out with all these sinners? Now, we should understand this. When the scribes and Pharisees called people sinners, they were referring to people who weren't as um, committed to studying God's law and the prophets as they were. And they were people who went the way of the culture, and they followed the customs of the day rather than God's law. So the Pharisees were, were strongly committed to following God's law. So committed, as we've learned before, that they built this homemade rule book around the law, so they didn't even get close to touching the actual law. So part of their keeping God's law and thereby earning righteousness meant being separate from the world and the people in the world who were of the world. So they literally stayed away from people, like wouldn't even go near people that they assumed to be morally loose. But this was just a religious system. This was just a form. This was an appearance of righteousness, as the scriptures tell us. And we can see that true morality, as we're going to see as Jesus defines it, had little to do with this system, as Jesus defines it. See, one of the problems is that, you know, Jesus comes on the scene and he's claiming to be righteous. He's forgiven sins, forgiving sins. He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. He's eating with sinners. He's letting prostitutes wash his feet. He's eating with women. Everything Jesus is doing contradicts the Pharisees' righteousness. Everything, literally everything Jesus is doing contradicts the Pharisees' righteousness. You see the problem. Reading verses 12 and 13. But when he heard it, he said, so sweet. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means, Pharisees. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus quotes here from what Tommy read in Hosea. Hosea is known as the prophet of steadfast love. He's proclaiming to Israel also what God desires. So number two, truth that comes out of this text is that God's standards have always been the same. God's standards have always been the same. God has always, always, from the very beginning, desired obedience from the heart. He's desired a true worship, which is of the heart, and it's seen by its love for God and compassion for others. We know this from our time in uh, Genesis in the covenant of works where it's about perfect obedience of the heart perfect obedience of the heart of the mind of the soul to all that God had commanded to all that he said to do and not do perfect obedience not outwardly but with a pure heart motivated with nothing about selfishness motivated with no pride purity perfection God's standard for Israel, for all humanity, it's been that. It's been that. He gave him the law. Was it that the law never existed? Well, absolutely not. He wrote it down so that it could show them, right, the perfect holiness of God and the standard and to show them that they don't meet it. 
And so after he gave Moses the law, what did he institute right after that? The sacrificial system. Would you give somebody a sacrificial system if you thought that they could keep the law perfectly? Absolutely not. The sacrificial system was given to point because Jesus was always the plan and the law was never given to make anybody righteous. And so the way it would look for Israel, if you will, of course they can't keep it perfectly, so they have to sacrifice. But in that whole process, right, where you have God's holy law and, and, and Israel is just, you know, trying to not be idolaters, trying to have compassion on each other, love God and love people, and they fail. But then they, they see the mercy of God displayed and being able to have a sacrificial system where God does cover sins, where God does protect Israel in lots of physical ways. I mean, there is so much mercy and grace happening from God to Israel while this system is in place to show them that I have always desired perfection. I'm not just looking over it, right? It always pointed to Jesus. And so this is kind of how it would work. But the way it played out is, well, if I just give some rams and sacrifice a lot, then I'm good. That's what it turns into, right? Because we're very selfish and we like it. We love it. And so did Israel. They're no different. The Pharisees love the fact that they think they're righteous. And we easily look at them and like, they're guys, they're, they're so good. And we are just like them, though. And we'll explore that later. So he's always been a rewarder of those who diligently seek him with a pure heart and obey his voice. But listen to these words of the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 7, 22 and 23. For in that day, I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and, offerings and sacrifices, but this command I gave them. Obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. Hear these words from another prophet, Micah, chapter six, verses six through eight. With what? Shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice, love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. My brothers and sisters, I want you to raise your hand if you have obeyed the voice of the Lord and have been as holy as he is holy. Have you done justice? Have you loved kindness and walked humbly before God all the days that you've been alive to the extent that he commands it? That's what he rewards. Those who've done that get eternal life. But here in these verses in Matthew, we find the Pharisees are literally trusting their keeping of the law to be accepted by God but have no charity for other people. And they call it holiness. Ultimately, when it comes down to it, they see themselves as needing a little of God's mercy, but not like these dirty, poor, unholy sinners in which Jesus hangs around all the time. 
They say they obey God, but they have not love. And they call it holiness. The irony, the irony in all of this is that they haven't obeyed the voice of the Lord a bit. James 2.10 says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point becomes guilty of the whole thing. If that's true and God never changes, they have never kept the law. And they call it holiness because it looks good. With what shall I come before the Lord? I was texting with Justin and, and Rob this week. And Rob says, only the righteousness of Christ. Only the righteousness of Christ. Jesus is having mercy on sinners in this text. The Pharisees don't associate with their kind. Jesus came for sinners. Pharisees say they don't need saving. Jesus is showing what holiness looks like, and he's doing it as our substitute. Jesus is mercy in the flesh. He's exposing these Pharisees, their lack of righteousness, and showing them what it means to have mercy. Everything that they hated about Jesus was his point of saying, but this is mercy. This is actually obedience to the law to the extent that I've commanded it. Look at how the righteous Son of God came into this world to serve, not to be served, to show mercy, to save sinners. God does not change. His standard has always been perfect obedience. His plan has always been to save sinners by sending His Son to meet those standards and to atone for their sin. And God never fails. It is done. The Lord Jesus showed up and He met every requirement and He did it for you. And His death, the God the Father accepts and says that you are forgiven. You are forgiven. And it's not just for the sins that you accidentally commit. It's for sins that you intentionally commit as well. He is an intentional Savior of intentional sinners. He didn't fail. It's done. You're no longer condemned. Because Christ Jesus is enough for righteousness and he's enough for forgiveness. And although we admit our need for mercy, how many of us can regretfully identify with these Pharisees' lack of mercy? We'd be lying to ourselves if we said we didn't. Have you ever found yourself not associating with a certain person in this congregation because they struggle differently than you? You ever find yourself avoiding folks because you don't like their sin? but you're willing to tolerate other people's sin? Have you ever found yourself judging another person because they seem to fail at whatever you're really good at? Have you ever been proud of yourself? As if anything good in you doesn't come from God? Have you ever thought, man, God must really be proud of me Again, as if there's anything good in you apart from him. Do you ever find yourself upset because you're looking at your obedience and not Christ's? Or maybe you find yourself proud because you're looking at your obedience instead of Christ's. Me too. 
Me too. But Jesus shows up as mercy. Mercy and grace in the flesh. And he's showing them what it is to be holy. The one whom the law and the prophets speak of is in the flesh. Let's just, just say it again. He showed up to be holy and observe every word of God, and he did it in your place. He condemned sin in the flesh. He was pierced for your transgression and crushed for your iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, you are healed. He's not just correcting the Pharisees' false righteousness. He's not just calling sinners to stop sinning. He's not just here to pay for some of your sins up to your conversion. He's not just here to pay for sins that we accidentally commit like we just stated. He did it all. He did it all. In Christ, Christ is all and in all. Sinners, He finished redemption. It's done. Here's an important part too. He wasn't here just to give us an example of doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly before God the Father. Because being like Jesus saves no one unless you do it perfectly. Repentance and faith in Jesus saves anyone who believes. The gospel is good news because it gifts us with repentance perfection. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It's law that condemns us. But in Christ, it is now a way of life. In Christ, it is now the way we live. Looking at the perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, knowing that we're no longer condemned, live a life of mercy. Back to the big idea. Jesus came for sinners. There is a life, sorry, he came for sinners and there is a freedom which leads to a life of mercy when one realizes their sickness and is touched by the great physician. Bear with me. So there Jesus is with little rich ex-tax collecting Matthew and a bunch of his sinner friends. Friends who were trapped in their idolatry, trapped in their love of money, trapped in their thieving ways, trapped in sexual immorality. Maybe some are just normal folks who are just trying to do the right thing but are still trapped because they don't love God perfectly and they're selfish. And Matthew is encountered with the mercy of a holy God, a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness in human flesh. As we acknowledged at the beginning of our time together, we humans are not as we should be. Culture, society, the world is not as it should be. Your brothers and sisters will sin against you. You'll be offended. How often does Justin tell us this? How often does Pastor Justin tell us, don't be shocked when you're sinned against? And yet, for some reason, we end up being a little shocked. And then we hold a grudge and we have judgment and anger in our hearts. Go to that person, brothers and sisters, and lovingly tell them that you've been offended. And if you've offended someone on purpose, repent. None of us are shocked. Well, I just admitted we are, but we shouldn't be shocked that you offended somebody on purpose. We do that. 
Let's not fool ourselves. And if your brother or sister comes to you and says that you offended them and you had no clue, don't be shocked that you offended somebody and you didn't know. You're a sinner. We are all sinners, and we naturally do things that hurt people. And sometimes don't even realize it. So accept their offense and work it out, because you are no longer condemned. And we have eternity to look forward to. We're going to be there together. Protect one another. Love one another. Seek to understand. Fight your self-righteousness with the rest that comes from only the Lord Jesus. And let's have compassion on each other. Listen to this quote. Not all is right with reality. There are swamps among the sunrises. We bob until we sink. This is our consequence. But all is not lost. God is there and he is not silent. Divine voice whispers and cries out and sings. The divinity that once walked on Eden's ground in the cool of the day muddies his feet in the swamps of our making. The one who walks on water stands buoyant in the bog. He bends downward. He plunges hands, arms, elbows, and chest into the slop. The haunted and submerged, he upheaves. In the cadaverous, he sets upright. Mouth to mouth, he breathes full into us. Our lungs expand with the puff. We cough, pull deep, and discover breath. We feel again the warm touch of the sun upon our muddy caked faces. On his knees, he steadies us. His fingers slide the, the grimy weight off of our eyes. Liberated, our eyelids rise. And among the swamps, we behold the eyes of mercy gazing into us. In Christ, we are right with God. He, and he is making us more like himself. And we will be with him forever. We fight selfishness. We fight self-righteousness. And we seek to love and have mercy. So let's end our time together with these words from Colossians. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself you who were once alienated, and hostile in mind. Doing evil deeds, he has, not he has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And so you will be, beloved, on account of Christ alone. Let's pray together. Father, we praise your holy name for your plan of redemption. Lord Jesus, we praise you for saving us, for jumping into the swamp that we created. As we go to the table now, help us increase our faith to know that Christ is enough and change us, God, to fight our 
self-righteousness, to have compassion, to be clothed with compassion. Father, we praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.